Well, go ahead and get this out of the way. I have a black eye, if you didn't notice. So it happened playing basketball. Got elbowed in the eye. So that's just to resolve your curiosities. There it is. And now we can stop talking about me and move on to the text and the sermon this morning. Actually, the, uh, Toby Keith does a good job of capturing, you know, the country singer Toby Keith does a good job of capturing just this tendency in each one of us to want to talk about ourselves or the things that we like, the things that we enjoy. There's a song that he has written or, or sings, Want to Talk About Me. It's addressed to his significant other, and he says, I, I love talking about you and the things that you like. It makes me smile when I talk about those things, but occasionally I want to talk about me. I, I want to talk about myself, what I like, what I want, the things that make me happy. I want to talk about me. And often we can have the tendency of even doing this in our relationship with Christ when we come to his holy word. Do you recognize that tendency in yourself? You want to see the so what. What does it matter for me? What's the application for me? What do I need to do? What, we want to find out about us, our responsibilities. What does it have to do with me? And there is this potential that we become self-absorbed even when we come to Scripture so that we make the main character me and myself. We could... In doing that, unhelpfully make Scripture revolve around us instead of our lives revolving around Christ and His Word. And so as we come to our text this morning, Psalm 1, I want to contend that we should read this psalm firstly as descriptive. In other words, the psalmist is describing what the blessed man looks like. And then secondarily, after we, after we encounter that, then we can begin to read it perhaps prescriptively. How do I become blessed? We tend to get this reversed. We, we often put ourselves forward as the main characters and center of Bible passages. We want to ask, how does it apply to me? But instead, let's be slow to do this as we come to our text every day, as we, today and as we read our Bibles regularly. Let's be slow to put ourselves forward as the most important thing. Let's first ask, what does it say about God? What does it mean? And then, after we ask those questions, we can turn to application. So let's look at what it says. Turn with me to Psalm 1 and 2. I'll read Psalm 1 first, and let's discover what the text is teaching us. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff, that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, thank you for your holy word. We pray that you would teach us by it, that you would convict us through it, that you would nourish us 
by your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We encounter this blessed man who is first described in a negative sort of way by the things that he does not do. Did you notice that? He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers. And these three statements are parallel, but they progress in their intensity. Notice the verbs. He isn't influenced as he walks by the wicked. He doesn't allow himself to be drawn in and stand still, taking in the counsel of the wicked. And he definitely doesn't put down roots and settle in with the scoffers. But you could notice also the words used to describe these these wicked. They also grow in intensity. The wicked, first, are those who are convicted by the law as guilty of sin. But sinners perhaps expands that a little bit. It's not only those who have sinned once, but sin is at the root of who they are. They are sinners. And scoffers takes it to another level. Those who take pleasure in their sins, who mock the righteous, who mock the things of God. They have no regard for the things of God. I've never been to Bourbon Street in New Orleans, but I've heard about it. I read some reviews online And one said, I'll just hit you with the facts. It is lined with bars, nightclubs, and strip clubs. Music is jamming, lights are flashing, people are screaming, and everyone is wasted. Well, if you imagine this blessed man walking down the street, Bourbon Street, he wouldn't welcome the influence among those he saw. He wouldn't be taken in as he walked by, as he strolled by. But neither would he stand still and then begin being lured in by the temptations that were there. And he definitely wouldn't settle in and make his way of life like the sinners who are around him. No, he delights in something else. In contrast to what he doesn't do, here is what he does. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on it he meditates day and night. The actual word here for law is Torah. It means instruction. It often refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. More broadly, it refers to the word of the Lord, the revelation of the Lord, instruction which comes from the Lord himself. So here's the picture then. This blessed man is taking pleasure in the Lord's instruction, in the word of the Lord. The the things of the world, of sinners, are of no delight to him. They don't intrigue him. They don't lure him aside. Instead, this is his delight. This is where he gets his joy, in the word of the Lord. He's always mulling it over, perhaps even reading it at a low mumble, as the Jews of the day would do. The law of the Lord is flowing through his heart and mind, day after day and hour after hour. But the psalmist goes on in his description. The blessed man is like a healthy fruitful tree drawing in the nourishing waters through its roots he produces fruit in season unlike the red and yellow and brown leaves we see in the fall and winter this the leaves of this tree are always green he's always soaking in the instruction of the lord in all he does he prospers completely opposite are the wicked 
husks and bits of wheat that are worthless, dry, and dead. They will not stand in the judgment. They won't be tolerated in the assembly of the righteous on that day. The Lord guards the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We're led to consider then, who is this blessed man? Who is the psalmist speaking of? Well, I can tell you one thing from the start. It surely is not me. And I can tell you a second thing. It surely is not you. Amen? Can it be said of you that your delight is in the law of the Lord? Nothing else lures you aside that you meditate on it day and night and day and night. There doesn't mean just in the morning and at night, right? It means continually throughout the day. It is in your veins, in your mind, in your heart, meditating on the word of the Lord. Can it be said of you that you have never walked in the counsel of the wicked? You have never stood in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of scoffers. And even if you were to lie and say all that was true, could you say that you have always yielded the fruit which brings glory to God at the appropriate time? Could it be said of you that all that you have done has prospered? I am not that blessed man, neither are you, but I desire to be that way. Our minds drift back to ourselves and we think, how can I be that blessed person? I want to be like that. What do I need to to get that? Especially that part about prospering and all that, that he does. That would be nice, right? How do we become blessed like that? Well, someone might try to summarize the answer from the text. Avoid bad company. Delight in and meditate on the law of the Lord. Perhaps then you'll be blessed in all that you do. Let me say that there is value in this. There are times we ought to avoid bad company, right? And we should at all times avoid participating in ungodliness and sin. Your delight ought to be in the instruction of the Lord. It should be that way. Day in and day out. But if we're honest with ourselves, by our own sinfulness and wickedness, we are much more associated, we are much more likely in the category of this other group of people that are listed in the text than, rather than this blessed man. We are the chaff. We deserve to be the chaff because of our sin, which is blown away by the wind. Because of our sins, we in ourselves cannot stand in the judgment before God Almighty. We don't deserve to stand with the righteous on that day. Our way, like the way of the wicked, should perish, and we along with it. Have you recognized that in yourselves? That you are more like the chaff than you are this fruitful tree which is planted by streams of water. And yet maybe again we've gotten ahead of the text in making this about ourselves. In asking this question about how do I become blessed. Psalm 1 describes the blessed man singular. So perhaps the better more relevant question is who is this blessed man? Who is the psalmist describing? And with these questions in mind, we now turn to Psalm 2 and continue on in this passage. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge. In him. What we encounter are the very wicked whose way will perish. These, these wicked nations, these wicked rulers and kings, the nations and peoples, the kings are in rebellion against the Lord. They're setting themselves against the Lord. They're conspiring against the Lord. But we encounter here another character. They are rebelling against the Lord and his anointed. In Samuel 16, Daniel is anointed with oil as king over Israel. And every king afterward would be anointed by oil in a proclamation of his kingship. In a kind of coronation, in a a symbol, a sign that God's spirit rested upon him. So the Lord's anointed refers to Israel's king. But isn't it interesting that this is a king... In Psalm 2, who has universal dominion. His kingdom is over all the earth, over all the nations, which is why they want to rebel against him. And at no point in Israel's history did a king have a universal dominion such as this. But how does the Lord respond to these rebellious kings and nations? Maybe he calls his angels together for for an important meeting on how how do we encounter this? How do we go against this challenge. He struggles to come up with plans and strategies to defend himself and his anointed. No, of course not. What does the Lord do? He laughs at them. And even now, the kings and rulers of this world, the nations have rebelled and continue to rebel against the Lord and his anointed. With all that's going on in our world, we could begin to think that they they are the ones who are actually in charge. The nations, the rulers, the kings of this world think that they are in charge. And yet the Lord laughs at them. Brothers and sisters, let great comfort come to you in this. To those who ask, where is your God? We answer, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Our God is in the heavens higher than any rule or authority and He works His will according to His good pleasure. And brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ Jesus, His good pleasure is to work all things together for your good. This is who is in charge. The sovereign King. The Lord laughs at these rulers and He terrifies them, it says, by saying, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. Zion, of course, refers to the center of where God's presence would be in the holy city of Jerusalem. But notice in verse 7 that the speaker changes. 
Now it is this king who is speaking. And he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me. And then what's the decree? It is divine sonship. I have made you my son. And universal dominion. Ask and I will give the nations to you. It all belongs to you. It's your possession. The Lord's anointed then is not only a king, but also the very son of God. And these ideas of divine sonship and universal dominion weren't new ideas for the Jews. Turn back in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 17. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 17. And there we find a great promise which God made to David when he was king over Israel. Look at what it says there. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. But even this promise to David has as its grounding an even earlier promise, one made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. Listen to it. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Lord had promised Abraham an offspring through which the nations would be blessed. You'll remember in the same way, he promised to Adam and Eve an offspring, which would crush the head of the serpent. The Lord's promises are being fulfilled step by step in Israel and in King David and in the kings who would come after him. God's kingdom is moving forward. And in light of this, the psalmist gives a solemn warning for those rebellious kings and nations who would oppose Israel and Israel's king. Be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. And what does wisdom look like? What what does heeding this warning look like? Look at this text. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So these kings and nations, all the nations of the world, all the people of the world must humble themselves and come before him with reverence and awe. Serve the Lord with fear. But also, notice also with joy. Did you catch that? It seems out of place. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. See, there must be humility, reverence, and awe before the Lord. But there also must be genuine joy. They must not only bow the knee to Him, they must find their delight in the Lord and His anointed. 
They must submit themselves and they must enjoy who he is. But these kings also have a responsibility to the son, to God's anointed. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. This refers to paying religious honor to him or we could say to worship him. They owe him adoration and praise. This is no ordinary king. This is no ordinary son of God as kings were understood to be. Rather, this is the promised offspring of David. This is the fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes and dreams. So in Psalm 1, we encounter this ideal, godly man who lives with delight in the law of God. And in Psalm 2, we have this ideal, godly king who has universal dominion and authority, and who is owed worship by the nations. Both of these psalms, then, I contend, are pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And you don't have to merely depend on me to know this. We have greater authority which tells us this. In Acts 13, Paul preaches to the Jews the good news of Jesus Christ. And he quotes Psalm 2, You are my son, today I have begotten you, as pointing ultimately to Jesus' coronation as king through his resurrection from the dead. For Paul, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises to David. Those promises couldn't be fulfilled in David alone, for he died and was buried, but Jesus rose from the dead and serves as king forever. The author of Hebrews also begins his sermon by declaring the preeminence of Jesus. He's greater than the prophets. He's the heir of all things. He's superior to the angels. As he says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Quoting again, Psalm 2. Or again, he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So the author of Hebrews maintains that these words were said not ultimately to David or to any other king, but to David's greater son, Jesus Christ. And look at the closing statement of Psalm 2. This wonderful statement of comfort. We've seen the power and the authority of this kingly son. Now let us see his love. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It is blessed are all who take refuge in the Son. So let me draw these, these things together. You may have wondered why I've taken these two psalms together as an introduction to the rest of the psalms when some only take the first to be the introduction to the psalms. But the two psalms are bound together, I think, in several ways. But I'll just point out to you first, neither of these psalms has a superscription ahead of it. Notice in Psalm 3, there is a superscription. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Sometimes, especially if there are other meaningful connections, the absence of superscriptions may indicate that the two psalms are to be read together as one. And we do have even a more meaningful connection by this idea of blessing and this word in particular, blessed. Blessed is the man in verse 1. And blessed are all in 2, verse 12. It forms a frame together around these two psalms, signaling, I think, that we should read them together. And so in this way, Psalms 1 and 2 serve as an introduction to the book of Psalms. Think about how would you read the book of Psalms if you just took Psalm 1 as the introduction? 
What idea might you come away with? It would be a good one. You'd say, well, I want to be that blessed man. I want to be fruitful and prosper in all that I do. Therefore, as I read these psalms, I really need to delight in them. I need to meditate on them day and night. And this is how I will be blessed. And that's a good thing. We could do worse, right, than to delight in the law of God as it is found in the Psalms and in the Scriptures. We all ought to give more serious time to a reading of, a delight in, and a meditation upon the Scriptures. That is a, that is a desperate need for God's people today. But consider how the Psalms are transformed if we incorporate Psalm 2 into this introduction. We should delight in and meditate on the law of the Lord as we read the Psalms, but there is something greater to be found. Delighting in and meditating on the law of the Lord isn't an end in and of itself. Rather, those actions of delighting in and meditating on the law of the Lord reveal to us the Messiah of the Lord. They reveal to us the person in whom we should delight. Those actions lead us to delight in and take refuge in the Messiah who has come to save his people. So the Psalms don't simply teach us about the ups and downs that we experience in this life. They aren't here merely to tell us that we can have a blessed life by delighting in God's law. They aren't merely songs of worship, though they are that. They aren't merely prayers for God's people, though they are that. They point us to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. All the law and the prophets speak of Jesus Christ. Christ is the anointed one. It's all about Him. He is the central figure of the Psalms. And here, then, is where we find true blessing and salvation. In taking refuge in this anointed one. Not making the story about ourselves and how we can be blessed, but in making the story about Jesus Christ. Delighting in Him, meditating on Him, the one who will save us. Blessing, then, is not found in the law, but in delighting in the Messiah. But let's be sure what Messiah we're talking about. Psalm 2 speaks of this sovereign king who rules the nation with a rod of iron. He shatters the nation. It's interesting how how the scripture puts it. The, The nations are his possession to do what with? To break into pieces with a rod of iron. Speaking of his judgment over the rebellious nations, we see his, his power, his might. And we may be tempted to think then that this is the route we should take in order to usher in God's kingdom. Wielding political power, wielding uh, military might in order to raise up the kingdom of King Jesus. We may begin to think of our Messiah as triumphant in power and victory over all his enemies, and he is that, but not by earthly means. Remember in Acts 13, 33, Psalm 2 is quoted by Paul, You are my son, today I have begotten you. But Paul quotes it in reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as his coronation as king. And before there can be a resurrection, there must first be a death. Before the stone was rolled away, the cross was lifted up. Before victory, there must be suffering. And this is our Messiah, Jesus. 
It's not what the Jews were expecting. They were expecting that military conqueror. He wasn't what they wanted either, was he? He is not what much of our world wants because of how he has come. He has come in humility. He came as a little baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. He humbled himself to the point of death, even to the point of a shameful death on the cross. He died on the cross for our sins. Is this your Messiah? Is this your king, brothers and sisters? This humble Christ who was crucified on a wooden cross? I hope so, because this is where blessing comes from. Not from diligent Bible study, as good, good as it is, not from keeping the law of the Lord or delighting in it. Blessing is found in the crucified and risen Christ. Delighting in Him. In Christ you have life. In Christ you have forgiveness. In Christ you have the promise of everlasting life in the presence of the King. You see, we are not building the kingdom. We are receiving the kingdom. And every time this gospel of Jesus and His cross is proclaimed, it breaks in a little more. Every time the the bread and the cup are distributed among God's people, the kingdom of God is breaking in. Every time we gather together like this on the Lord's Day, the kingdom of God is breaking into the kingdoms of this world. We get a foretaste of the heavenly realities and King Jesus is proclaimed. Now there will come a time when Jesus will come in power and authority and judge the nations. Right? Revelation 2.27 12, 5, and 19, 15 allude to Psalm 2 and tell us that Jesus will come with a rod of iron and He will shatter those who are rebellious against Him. But that is in the age to come. In this age, we patiently wait with expectation, with hope, humbling ourselves, patterning our lives after the Savior's, delighting in Christ and His Word and proclaiming Christ crucified for sinners until he comes. Let's be about that work, brothers and sisters. Let's pray together.